Well, it sure feels like a lot has changed, yes? Just over a year ago, a pandemic hits the globe and we're asked to stay home from church. And a couple months later, well, okay, you can go back just a little bit. But whoa, whoa, hold on, a few months later, maybe not, let's hold off. And then now we're at the point where we're allowed to come back again, we're having indoor services and Lord willing, as the months go on, things are gonna open up more and more and more. And in the middle of it all, Pastor Jeff announces that he's taken a new assignment down in Chicago and we're beyond excited to send him off. Uh, and then at the end of the month, we have a congregational meeting where Pastor Mark is gonna be voted on as potentially our new lead pastor. That's a lot of change for a church in a year. But that's probably just the tip of the iceberg for many of you. I can't imagine the amount of changes that are going on in your personal lives or the changes that are going on at work for you. Changes all around us. And it's not a particularly novel thing, right? Change has always been a part of our lives, right? You, you might look down at that baby in your arms, Aaron and Ashley, and think to yourself, man, I just, I just wish things would never change. But they will. Change, change happens. And sometimes change comes into our lives like a massive gust of wind and it blows in and knocks us right off our feet, right? We talk about things that are life-changing experiences, some, some for the better and some for the worse in some cases. I remember the day that I was out uh, working in the garage with my dad. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't working, but I was in the garage with my dad. And my mom comes out of the house, she comes into the garage and she goes right to my dad's shoulder weeping because she had just gotten the phone call that my grandpa had passed away, her dad. And that was, for me, a life-changing moment. It was the first time that somebody that I loved and knew and had seen many times in my life was suddenly gone, and I was never gonna see them again. That's a life-changing experience. But, but that doesn't just happen for us in the world around us. Things, things change all the time, and we deal with it, and we respond to it, but it also happens inside of us sometimes. Sometimes as, as Christians, we feel like there are spiritual changes that go on in us, and some for the better, Lord willing, most for the better. But every now and then, it, it's like we stumble into something and we think, how the heck did I end up here? H how am I here? I, I remember uh, at a previous church, there was a gentleman who almost without fail would come by every week and he would knock on the door and talk to the receptionist and say, I, I just wanna talk to a pastor. And they would, they would call around and it seemed like I was generally the one who was available for some reason at that time. And I knew exactly what I was in for. I was gonna walk out those doors and I would say a few things and then I would listen, listen, listen because they would just pour out to me what was going on in their mind and usually it went something like this. Joshua, on, on Wednesday, I did such and such. I, I did this and I can't believe I did it. I don't know why I did it. I didn't wanna do it, but I did it. What does it mean? Does, does God still love me? Do, do I still love him? A, a, am I saved? If, if I were to die right now, would I go to heaven? He, it's like he was knocked off of his feet. He, he didn't have any ground to stand on. He wasn't sure anymore of what he thought he had been sure of. And I would talk to him and we'd settle and then he'd go away and he'd come back the next week the same way. And I think he shows on the outside what a lot of us feel on the inside when it comes to our spiritual lives sometimes. We, we feel like we see things in ourselves and we wonder, man, what does that mean that I'm feeling that way or that I'm doing this thing? And it almost like, it, it's almost like it knocks, it off, knocks us off our feet a little bit. So he, here's my question. Is there a way for you and I as Christians to be satisfyingly unmoved in a world that's constantly changing around us and with hearts that sometimes betray us? Is it possible for us to be satisfyingly unmoved? And I say satisfyingly for a reason because I think, I think it's possible to be unmoved and unsatisfied. 
I mean, just imagine for a moment, you, you would never do this, of course, and, and of course I've never done this, but imagine somebody holding an opinion so firmly, right? They stand up on their hill, they're ready to die on it. And then as they begin to, you know, have conversations with people who disagree with them, they begin to realize, huh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe their arguments aren't quite as bad as I thought. And eventually you begin to think, oh man, maybe they're, maybe they're right. But you still stand on your hill, right? You're still willing to die there. Why? Well, because you're probably ashamed to say that you're wrong. Yeah, of course I've never done this. Right, just don't ask my wife. So you can be unmoved, but you'd be unsatisfied because in the end you're convinced that maybe you aren't right anymore. My question is, is there a way for us to be unmoved as Christians that for the rest of our lives, no matter what goes on around us, no matter what we see around us, we, we are convinced to our core that where we stand is solid ground. That, that no matter what we see, a, a greener, a seemingly greener patch of grass over there, we're still convinced, no, this is, this is the best place for me to stand, is right here. Is it possible for us to have that? I think it is. Let me give you a, a picture, a word picture of, of what I think it is we're describing here. It would be for you and me to be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. A tree with, with roots that run deep into the ground, into the soil, but, but by a stream of water, a never-ending resource of exactly what we need. Bearing fruit in season, right? Summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, th things are gonna change around us all the time. There's gonna be wind, it's gonna be dry sometimes, and yet in the right season, when God so intends, we will bear fruit. And whose leaf doesn't wither, we're not gonna fade, we're not gonna fall away, we stay healthy and alive. That's, that, I think, is what we're talking about. And that is the picture given to us in Psalm 1. If you have your Bible, I, I want you to turn there. That's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time, Psalm 1. But let me make one more um, precursor to what I'm saying here, just, just to, to clarify. When I say unmoved, I don't mean, I can't mean unemotional. And I, I say that because Psalm 1 finds itself at the beginning of the whole book of Psalms. There's 150 of them. And the book of Psalms is not given to us in chronological order. It's not like the first Psalm is the first one ever written. In fact, we're, we're pretty confident that Psalm 90 is the first one ever written because it was written by Moses. And that's, that's near the end of the book. So Psalm 1 then was placed at the beginning for a very particular reason. Whoever collected this put it there because they were trying to say something. And I think a part of what they're trying to say is that we can be unmoved. We can be like this tree, satisfied, and yet, every, every psalm after this, psalm after psalm after psalm, is going to be filled with a grand array of emotion, right? The psalmist is going to be frustrated and confused and downcast, and he's going to cry out and say, Lord, where are you? How long until you help me? How long until you rescue me? He's going to feel that. And there are other times when the psalmist feels joy and happiness, and he just longs and thirsts for the Lord. There's emotional a reality in the Psalms, it's beautiful. And so I think this Psalm is here at the beginning to tell us there's a way to be sturdy, but it doesn't mean unemotional. It doesn't mean that you don't feel. Things are gonna go on in your lives and you're gonna feel it, but you're not gonna be swept off your feet because the goal is that this would be true of you. But I'm gonna make three points. How is it that you and I as Christians can be this? How can we be satisfyingly unmoved? Here are my three points. First of all, by delighting, secondly, by digesting, and third, by depending. By delighting, digesting, and depending, okay? 
So I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. Uh, follow along with me. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So the, the, the very first word of the whole book of Psalms is this glorious word, blessed. Blessed is the one. And that word means, uh, other translations will take it and uh, use the word happy. And that's not a bad way to put it, but it's a happiness that's much deeper than the happiness we talk about. We, we think of happiness as something on the surface. You got a grin on your face today. But the happiness, the blessedness here is, is something that's underneath the surface. You know, there might be turmoil on top of the sea, but underneath there is this contented happiness and joy. There's a, a satisfaction. There's, there's a sense that we walk in the very way that God intended us to walk in the fullness of life and we feel his favor and blessing. That's what it would be for you and I to be blessed. And the psalmist connects that word blessed to the, the image, right? Blessed is the one, he goes all the way down, and that person, verse three, is like a tree. The, the blessed person is like a tree. But he starts by defining this blessed person in two ways. He gives us a negative and he gives us a positive, that the blessed person is not this, but the blessed person is this. So, so what are they not? He, he starts in verse one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. There's actually, it seems as though there's a, a step down with every line in this verse, right? As if you're walking your way into a deep, dark cave. With every step, it's getting darker and darker and darker. Because the first line starts with, with blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked. And that word step could actually be better translated as the counsel of the wicked. Those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We're talking about the thought life, right? These are the things that the wicked think about. They, and quite honestly, it's the things of the world. It's the pleasures of the world. That's what they think about. And that moves, it cascades, and quite naturally, you can understand why, into the very next line, those who stand in the way that sinners take or in the conduct that sinners take. So you've moved from the thought life to the activity, and you can see how that's natural, right? You, you think about something for so long, and inevitably, probably, you're, you're gonna act on it. You're gonna do something. So we've taken one step down, and then the final step is those who sit in the company of mockers. So the, the idea of sitting in a company in this context would be to describe somebody who identifies themselves with a particular group. Right, you go into the cafeteria, you sit down with the, with the athlete all-stars, and you say, this is where I belong. I mean, not, not me, of course. But you, you're saying, I identify with this group. These are my people. So you, you've moved from somebody who thinks about wicked things to somebody who does wicked things to finally someone who sits among wicked people and says, yeah, these are my people. This is where I belong. And each cascades into the next one. And the psalmist uses that to contrast with what the blessed are. This is what they're not. But what they are is those who delight in the law of the Lord. And what I want you to see, what I think the psalmist is actually trying to set up for us is not that the blessed are not people who do these things, but delight in this. I think what he's trying to communicate to us is both have a problem. Both the need is delight. The problem with the wicked is not what they do, but it's what they delight in. It's what they want, it's what they desire, it's what they consider to be the supreme pleasure of their lives. And so the one who's not blessed, the one who 
is not this tree, is somebody who's bought into the lies of the world. And there, there are many of them, right? It doesn't take long to point them out, but you watch any commercial on TV and its hook is gonna be to try and get you and your desire for something of the world and to get you to, to buy, to get you to be a part of it, right? If you invest with us, the lower fees, well, you'll retire earlier. I'm not saying that's a lie. I'm saying that the hook is you want more money, right? That, that would be happiness for you. That would be satisfying, right? Wouldn't it? If you had all the money in the world, wouldn't you be happy? Well, we all know that that's a lie. Let me, there's really two really good reasons. I mean, first of all, money comes and money goes. Even if you have a lot of it, if, it's, if it is your supreme pleasure, you always want more, but inevitably things happen in your lives, right? The stock market crashes or something happens to a family member and you need to fork out a whole lot of money. It comes and it goes, it, it disappears. If your happiness is rooted on something like that, well, yes, you're not gonna be like a tree. You're gonna be tossed to and fro. But a second really good reason is, well, you and I are gonna die. And can you take your money with you? No, no, you can't. So if your supreme happiness is in money, if it's in something of the world, you're gonna be disappointed. You are, you're not gonna be like a tree. You're, you're always gonna be thinking, this is, this is it, and looking around and realizing, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. This is what has happened to the wicked. They've bought into the lies of the world, and because of that, because their thought life has been transformed, they begin to act on it and they begin to identify with it. And the contrast that the psalmist is making is that this is what the wicked delights in, the things of the world, the supreme pleasures that the world offers and yet cannot, cannot back up. That versus the person who is blessed who delights in the law of the Lord. And that word law uh, actually should be better translated as the word instruction because that's the very first meaning of the Hebrew word that we have here. If, if we just took it to mean law in the sense that we all imagine it, we'd probably think, oh, he's talking about the, God's rules, right? If you just love God's rules, you'll be happy. Or, or we could take it to mean the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We talk about them as the books of the law. But that's not really what he's, what he's communicating. He's saying all of God's instruction, that the blessed person is the person who delights in God's instruction. But here's the important thing to understand about God's instruction, which is the whole Bible. That is everything that we have revealed to us. Right? God informs us of himself and of what he's done in the world and of his character and what he expects of his people. He informs us and it's in every page across the scriptures. But the important thing to understand when we read our Bibles is that we're actually supposed to read our Bibles and look through it to see God himself. Right, there's a great moment in Jesus' ministry, and actually in Luke 24, Jesus has, has already died on the cross and now has risen from the grave. But he hasn't revealed himself to anybody. But there's these two disciples of his who are walking to, the to Emmaus on the road, and Jesus comes alongside them and he hides himself from them. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, whoa, where have you been, under a rock? Have you not heard about what's happened in Jerusalem? He says, well, tell me. No, they tell him, and as the conversation goes, Jesus, Jesus pipes up and he he jumps in and says, and we're told this, that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. That little verse should be a bit of a North Star for us when we read our Bibles, particularly when we read our Old Testaments. Every bit of the Old Testament, every book is there intentionally to point us to Jesus, to point us to his coming and the need for his, his life, death, and resurrection. Every single book 
So you might look at a passage in a chapter and be like, I just don't, I don't see him here. But it's, it's, it's not that he's in every paragraph. It's that every paragraph within its context is speaking of something that drives us to the need for Jesus. So when we read our Bibles, we actually have to understand that when we read it, we're reading through it to come to the knowledge of God himself. We, we want to know God himself. The, the Bible is never a book that leads you back to itself. Its goal is never to get you to simply to know more of it, but to know more of God. And so when the psalmist says that the blessed person is someone who delights in the instruction of the Lord, really what he's saying is that this person delights in the word because through the word they know God. Really, their delight is in God himself. And there is no more satisfying pleasure that you can pursue, right? If your heart longs for something absolutely, perfectly satisfying, there is nothing else that could do that but God himself. He is the one who could perfectly satisfy us because he is the very one for whom we were created to enjoy. So to delight in his instruction is to delight in him. So here's, here's my question. What do, you, what do you want? That's really the question that is being asked here when the psalmist is talking about delight. There, there's a book that was written by a great pastor theologian back in the, the 18th century by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and the book is, is entitled The Freedom of the Will. And at, ri at the risk of you know, summarizing it and losing a lot of what goes on in there, because it is very dense, let me try and sum it up for you like this. Essentially, his argument is that people do what they want to do. People do what they want to do. And at any moment, what you want to do is what you, with your history and your experience and your perception of the future, what you consider to be the most pleasurable decision. So when I prepare for a sermon, I usually jump around to a num number of different coffee shops because uh, for one, I just can't sit still for very long. But I love the buzz of life going on around me. For some reason, it helps me concentrate. But there was one day when the Wi-Fi was terrible at a particular coffee shop, so I ended up at an A&W. And I go, there's like 11.30 in the morning and I stand up at the, at the counter and I'm prepared to just order a coffee. That's why I'm there. But of course, on the menu right in front of you at 11.30 are French fries. And so I made, you know, the snap decision in that moment to order a coffee and French fries at 11.30 a.m. It's a weird combo. I still enjoyed it. But, but why did I do that? Well, the simple answer is this, uh, because I wanted to. Because in that moment, whatever was going on in my brain, it was a snap decision, but somehow I came to the conclusion that it would be more pleasurable for me to have those fries and pay the salty, greasy consequences of eating them than it would be for me to not have those fries. So I did. P people do what they want to do. So the, the problem with the wicked is that they want the things that they do. They, they want the things of the world. But the contrast with the blessed is that they want the things of God. They, they want to know him through his word. So what do you want? What, do, do you want the things of the world? Is that, if you're honest with yourself, is that what you consider to be the supreme pleasure? Money, fame, relationship. Is that what you want above everything else? Or do you want the Lord himself? And if you find yourself thinking, well, yeah, I, I want to want him, Right? But I don't, I don't want him enough that I find myself in his Bible all the time. I, I, somehow that's not true of me. So how can that be true of you? I, there are two ways that people get married. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that people get married, but there's really two predominant stories. The first one is, is love at first sight, right? 
You see someone across the room and you think, oh my goodness, I can't imagine my life without this person. And so you spend the rest of however long trying to pursue them and you want to know them and you spend the rest of your life with them, right? They love at first sight. But the more common story is, of, you know, you're in, a, you're in a friend group and someone new gets introduced to your friend group and you think, huh, hmm, you know, they're, they're pretty cool. You know, or, or someone new at work and you think, oh, well, you know, they're pretty cool. But as time goes on, you begin to see things that you never saw before. There are qualities, there are passions, there are uh, traits that you begin to realize, man, these are, these are amazing. And, and eventually you begin to realize, I can't imagine my life without them. Those are quite often two ways that we can come to the Bible. Quite often two stories. Some people, they, they read it and they think, oh my goodness, I, this is, these are the words of life. I just, I want to eat it up. But for many of us, it's, it's more like the second story that you come and you come alongside it and you begin over time to see things that you've never seen before and things that amaze you and, and strike you as glorious. And eventually you begin to think, I can't imagine my life without it. For a lot of us, it just takes a little bit of time and effort to come alongside it, to spend time with it, and as the Spirit of God works in you, that delight and that desire will grow. So how is it that you and I can be satisfyingly unmoved in a world that's constantly changing, with hearts that betray us? First of all, by delighting in the very person who is himself unchanging, immovable, God. And we delight in him by delighting in his instruction, by delighting in his word. Second point is, is this. So first of all, by delighting. Secondly, by digesting. Uh, if you really want to be satisfyingly unmoved, if you want to be like this tree, then you not only need to delight in the Lord's instruction, but, but that delight needs to hit the road. The word needs to transform and inform you. And the only way that it can do that is if you digest it. Right? If you grab it and if you hold on to it, just like, like Jacob in the book of Genesis, there's a moment where he wrestles with God overnight and he's wrestling. And in the end, he's holding on to him and he says, I won't let go of you unless you bless me. I won't let go. It's th that same sense. You have to grab the word of God and you have to hold on to it. You say, I won't let go of this until it changes me, until I'm a new person, until I think it's thoughts. Unless you were to, to prick me and Bible comes out. I, I won't let go. And the word that the psalmist uses here is the word meditate. The person who meditates on it day and night, consistently, persistently. And when we think about meditating, quite often for us, we, we have a bit more of an Eastern concept of meditation. The idea of somebody, you know, crossing their legs and they put their fingers together, close their eyes and they say, Om. But that's not, that's not the biblical picture of Meditation, because in the Eastern meditation, you do this and your whole goal is to empty your mind of all thought. You, you want to clear your mind. Think about nothing. <clears throat> Guys, we do this all the time. We go into our nothing box. No, just kidding. That's not quite what it is. But the biblical picture of meditation is not to empty your mind. It's to fill your mind. And here he's talking about filling your mind with the word, with God's instruction. This, this is what it is to meditate. It's to latch on to the truth and hold on to it, to stew on it, to let it percolate in your brain, to let it transform you and inform you. But quite honestly, I think this is where the psalmist loses most of us. If I sat down with you uh, and I asked you do, you, do you love God's word? I think 90, 95% of us would say, yeah, yeah, I do. 
But if I followed that with, okay, well, how, how often do you find yourself meditating on it? Holding on to it, stewing on it. I think that percentage would go down. But the psalmist is, is totally right, right? We, we, can, we can get this. If we want to be like a tree, if we want to be planted and un, unmoved, well, then we, we need to let the word transform us. It needs to not only just be something that we desire, but we need to take it and let it, let it change us. If you were to just glance over the New Testament, you'd probably get the idea that we as Christians should be gentle, kind, and loving people, right? But, but how likely are you to be gentle, kind, loving unless you are to stare at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? How likely are you to be merciful to other people until you have stared into the glory of the mercy of God that he would send his son to die a death that he didn't deserve so that you and I might live? How much more likely would you be to be merciful and kind and gentle if, you, if your thoughts were consumed with Christ? Right? You, you might pass over a passage. If you're doing your, your Bible reading plan in a year, you might pass over something like Romans 8.28. How many times have you heard this passage quoted in a sermon? Many, right? That all things work together for the good of those who love him. But how likely are you to believe that if what you stare at, if what you meditate on is the trial that's right in front of you and just how difficult it is and how hard it is, a trial that's in front of a friend and how difficult, how hard it is. You can't imagine why this is happening, why, why God would let this happen to them. How likely are you to believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him if you're staring at the trial as opposed to eating story after story after story in the Old Testament of God's kind providence toward his people? That you have a Joseph thrown in prison unfairly, unjustly, and yet years later is second in command of all Egypt. You have a Daniel who's taken away, stolen from his homeland, and then essentially taught to become a pagan trained to become a, a worshiper of other gods, but he refuses, he rejects it. He won't be unfaithful to God. And in the end, he's one of the highest officials in all the land. You have an Esther who is taken out of her home to be one of many women that the king is gonna look at as a, a new slab of meat. And yet she's chosen among them and God in his providence somehow uses her to rescue the whole people of Israel. If you were to stare at those stories, the trial in front of you all of a sudden doesn't seem that crazy anymore because that Romans 8.28 rings true. All things work together for the good of those who love him. But you need to stew on it. You need, it needs to digest in you. Most of us are, are asking questions that the Bible gives answers to, but we don't spend the time digesting it and letting it inform us. Most of us are living in some sort of unrepentant sin, big or small, because we just haven't let the word transform us by meditating on it. Just by way of a personal testimony here, there was a number of weeks ago, well, let me say this, I, I've been working through the book of 1 John in my Bible reading. I'll read it from cover to cover. I just want it to get downloaded into my brain. I want it to be a part of who I am. And so I just read it over and over and over again. And a couple of weeks ago, Shalane uh, came to me and she, and she said, hey, Joshua, there's this, this friend who needs some help. And I'm wondering if we can give up our afternoon this day to go and help them. And immediately there was a battle in my soul. Immediately, because my first thought was, whoa, I, I'm so busy and there's so many things on my plate and I just, I need, I need some time to rest and I need some time to get work done and these things, I don't know if I can do that. And at the same time, 1 John chapter three was attacking me in my heart. 
Because in 1 John 3, there's a moment where, where John will say that the person uh, who has the worldly goods, if someone has the goods of the world and yet sees a brother in need, but closes their heart to them, how does the love of God abide in them? You can see why that was attacking me, because I had the time, I had the freedom, but, but I wanted it for myself. And so I said to Shalane, let's do it. I don't, I don't want to, but I, I want to want to, so let's do it. I needed the word of God to transform me. I, I need the word of God to transform me, and I pray that I've learned that and I will continue to learn it, but that's how it works. You need to stew on it so that it transforms you and informs you so that when you look around, you make sense of the world because God's, God's word has made sense of it for you and your heart betrays you less and less and less because God's word is steadying you in righteousness. So how do we be satisfyingly unmoved? First, by delighting. Secondly, by digesting. And third, by depending Let me read the last three verses. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Any thoughtful Israelite, when they read this, should have been shaken to their core. Because what is the question that is forced upon them when you read this? It's this, well, just how righteous do I need to be? Okay, so the, the wicked are like chaff. They're not going to stand in the judgment or, or in the assembly of the righteous. God watches over the way of the righteous. He's pleased with it. He's delighting in it. How righteous do I need to be to be that? But more than that, honestly, more than that, how many of us, as we've talked through these two points, delighting and digesting, how many of us actually feel like we see the instruction of the Lord as our true delight? as a supreme pleasure that we go through it and we see God. How many of us really digest it by constantly daily mulling on it? This is one of the things that the Old Testament does so well and it's the very purpose that it was written. We're told that by by Paul in Galatians. But this is what it does well. It shows us the kind of life that leads to blessing and fullness, yet consistently reminds us that in and of ourselves we would never be able to find it let alone walk in it, let alone keep it, right? We need help. That's, that's what this psalm should, should cry into our hearts. Oh, so if I want to be steady, I should be delighting in God's word and I should be digesting it. Oh, we need help, right? How is it that I can be like this tree, unmoved when the wind blows me, bearing fruit when the right season comes? How can I be this kind of tree if I can't make my heart want the word of God? If I don't feel like digesting it, if I don't feel like digesting anything when I think about it, let alone do I even think about it that often? How can I feel like I'm this tree? How can I be the blessed person? How can I not consider myself one of the wicked standing outside the assembly of the righteous? This is why we so desperately need Christ. And this is why we need to depend on him. Because the, the, the statement of the Old Testament time and time and time and time again is, is, yes, you're not righteous enough. You're not. And so you need someone to come along and solve that problem. That, was, that is what Christ has done. He has come and granted to us his righteousness if we should believe in him because he paid the debt of our sin on the cross and lives forever when we believe in him. His righteousness is ours. 
We can have it. But the promise of salvation is, is not only the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ, but it's the promise of a new heart. It's the promise of new spiritual life. And when we trust in Christ, he sends his spirit to help us in our weakness. And is that not where we find ourselves? Oh, I should delight. <laughs> I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm weak at delighting. Oh, I should digest. Oh, I feel like I'm a failure at digesting. But if you've put your faith in Christ, let me tell you this. The Spirit of God is in you, ready to impart spiritual strength into your bones. You can actually live out this psalm. You can actually delight. You can actually digest if you simply depend upon the Spirit of God who is the strength of God in your life, giving it to you when you need it. You can be like this tree, but you can't just do it on your own, right? If, if people do what they want, how can I change what I want? Do, do, do you think we have that kind of power to just turn our hearts and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to decide to want this? No, we, we just want. How can I change that? Well, we need the Spirit of God. There's a great, a great image in this book by Charles Spurgeon. It's called All of Grace, and he's, essentially the whole book is this pleading He pleads with his reader, will you not receive Christ? Will you not believe in this gospel of grace? And at one point he's talking about people who consider themselves able to figure themselves out, right? Okay, yeah, you're saying that there's, there's, you know, something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, but I will will work and I'll make myself good enough. I think I can do that. And Spurgeon gives this little image. He says, you, my friend, are someone who stands underneath Niagara Falls at the very bottom under the crushing weight of that water and you try and push the water back up over the cliff. You think you can do it? No, no, you can't. Well, I think that's a great image for for this too. Even as Christians, we don't delight in what we should delight in and we don't digest it the way we should. We don't mull on it and let it transform us. But but when we take this and say, okay, well, I'm gonna gonna do it. I'm just gonna figure it out. It's like we're standing under Niagara Falls trying to push the water back up. We're trying to change our hearts and change our wants. It's good that we try. In fact, we should. But what we need is the strength of God to come along and help us in our weakness. This is what we need. So if you want to actually be satisfyingly unmoved, because the world is going to change. There's going to be more change in our church in the future. It's going to happen. There's going to be more change in your personal life. There's going to be more things going on. There are going to be times when your heart betrays you and you feel like you've fallen in such a way you you don't know what it means. Things are going to happen in our lives. If you want to be steady, if you want to be unmoved, satisfyingly unmoved, you need to delight in the Lord through his word. You need to digest it. You need to let it get into your your veins. But in order to do that, you need to depend upon Christ, first for his righteousness and second for the spirit that he sends so that we might have the strength to do what we are called to do. He comes alongside to help us in our weakness. So with all your effort, do your best. But at the same time, remember that you need his help. Pray that he would help. Walk by his spirit. Trust him that he will help when the day comes. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We are thankful that in your word we see you, we find you, and we know you. 
God, we ask that we would know you all the more, that our love for you would grow, our desire to be in your word would grow, that it would transform us, it would inform us, that we would make sense of the world by how you've made sense of it, that our hearts would be steadied by the fact that you and your spirit are working in us. So God, help us, help us in our weakness. This is not natural to us to delight in the things that are yours and to digest it. So help us by your spirit. We're so thankful to be able to come to your word and find this in it. We're so thankful for the promise of salvation that we have. Fill us with the joy of it, God. We ask for your blessing and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.